This past month, physicist, physicist Eric Lerner comes right to the point. He writes, To everyone who sees them, the new James Webb Space Telescope images of the cosmos are beautifully awe-inspiring, but to most professional astronomers and cosmologists, they are also extremely surprising. Not at all what was predicted by theory. In the flood of technical astronomical papers published online since July 12, the authors report again and again that the images show lots of surprises and not necessarily pleasant ones. One paper's title begins with the candid exclamation, panic. Why do these images inspire panic among cosmologists? The truth is that the hypothesis that the images are blatantly and repeatedly contradicting is the Big Bang hypothesis, that the universe began 14 billion years ago in an incredibly hot, dense state and has been expanding ever since. Since that hypothesis has been defended for decades as unquestionable truth by the vast majority of cosmological theorists, the new data is causing these theorists to panic. Says Alison Kirkpatrick, an astronomer at the University of Kansas, quote, right now I find myself laying awake at three in the morning, I'm wondering if everything I've done is wrong. Yes, Allison, it probably is. One of my mentors, Dr. Roger Chambers, says or said that if someone is highly educated in something that is not true, they are still ignorant. Isn't it interesting when the settled science suddenly becomes unsettled, shaken? But it's not just the science in our world that seems to be shaken lately. We're seeing that effect in education and politics and morality and sexuality and transportation, economics, energy, medicine, which all translates into anxiety for a lot of people. March 2nd of this year, the World Health Organization brief said that the global prevalence of anxiety and depression over the last year has increased by a massive 25%. And a lot of us don't believe that because our confidence in the World Health Organization has been shaken. And you get to the point where we wonder, what do you believe? Who can you believe? Upon what can you build a life and stake a future and a fortune? And all of that gives rise to the current sermon series that we're starting today. Shaken, a sure word to a, an uncertain world. What we want to do over the next nine weeks, we're going to look at, at nine messages, nine Bible doctrines that are sure and upon which we can build our lives and stake our futures and our fortunes. And today, we're starting with the doctrine of sin. And I think that's a good one to start with because that's the reason why so many things are the way they are in our world today. Elliot Blount writes in his book, What We Believe, quote, Why do we have suffering in the world? The short answer is sin. All suffering in your life is a result of either your sin or the sin of someone else. We have death in the world because of sin. We have cruelty and justice because of sin. Everyone and everything suffered when sin entered the world. Now, what I want to do in this message today is just take a look at the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. I want us to see that in three ways this morning. Now first, we're just going to lay out the presuppositions for sin. In order for sin to even exist, there are three, three, uh, three 
presuppositions. All right, let's start with number one, the existence of law. The existence of law, Romans 7, 7. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. One definition of sin, a basic definition, is lawlessness. Sin is a breaking of the law. In order for there to be sin, there must be a moral law. And we would say as Christians, it is a law that reflects the very character of God. It is universal in its application. That is, everybody is accountable to this law, even if they don't have access to the written revelation of God, because the Bible says it's written on people's hearts, and our accountability to God is evident in creation. Romans 2.15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. And in chapter 1, verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Law. The second presupposition, there's actually four. The second presupposition is the existence of a creator God. So there must be law to break in order for there to be sin. In order for there to be law to which people are accountable, there must be a creator God. Isaiah 33, 22, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our law giver. The Lord is our king, and it is he who will save us. Now, remember when you were little and your big sister, your big brother was trying to tell you what to do and you did not do what they told you to do? And you turned to them and you said, you're not the what of me. You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. And they weren't the boss of you. That is true. Who made them the boss? And that is true of all kinds of law codes. They're capricious and arbitrary. And we've seen that a lot in our country over the last couple of years. Just capricious and arbitrary laws. Who gives anyone the right to lay down law for someone else? Well, if some the, the unilaterally will enforce it because they have the power. The golden rule, who, he who has the gold makes the rule. Or there may be common consent to obey some laws. But it is only a creator God. Because of, by virtue of his creation, he can do with his creation what he wants. And he has the moral authority to, authority to lay down the law. For his creatures that we are obligated to obey. James writes, echoing Isaiah, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. God is the boss of me and you. By the way, our Western society in general, and America in particular, have been turning away for a long time now from the concept of the idea of a creator God who created everything, ex nihilo, that's Latin for being for out of nothing. And to the degree we do that, to that degree we denigrate into lawlessness. We can eject God, but we will eject obedience to the law at the same time. Number three, presuppositions. The knowledge of the law. The knowledge of the law. Romans 4, 15. Paul writes, where there is no law, there is no transgression. No law, no sin. Now, we just said this law was universal in its application because it's written on people's hearts and because the evidence of God and creation. How could there be no law? Where is there no law? Well, as I understand what this means from the theology that I read, what, who Paul is referring to is children and those who are mentally handicapped. Those who are unable to understand the law. Too young, for instance, in the case of children, to understand that they are creatures of a creator God to whom they are accountable, and when they break His law, there's an eternal punishment for that. 
So one of the things that we have to determine as parents and grandparents is when our young children reach that, what we call the age of accountability, when they are able to understand the very concepts that we'll be talking about today, what sin is and what that means for them. Until that time, they're safe. They're not saved, but they're safe in God. All right, so the knowledge of the law. And then the fourth presupposition is free will. Joshua says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. We must have genuine free will to either obey or disobey the laws of our Creator God. Now, there are religious systems that do not teach free will. They teach man has no free will. They teach that God is the cause of sin. That's called determinism, determinism. Uh, But that's not us. We believe that man has free will. And actually, most evolutionary atheists fall into that deterministic category. They do not believe man has genuine free will. By that, I mean mankind. They believe everything is predetermined by our genetics, our genes, by our environment, that no one's really accountable for their actions. But nevertheless, those are the, the four presuppositions for sin to exist. All right, number two. Saying three things about serious sin today. The second thing, serious sin is the universal human condition. Meaning we are all serious sinners. I have a conversation with regularity. The conversation goes something like this. I'm a pretty good person. When I'm driving past the church, I look over, I think about those people in the church on Sunday morning. I'm just as good as any of them. If they're going to heaven, I'm going to heaven too because I'm a pretty good person. If I had a nickel for every time I had that conversation, I would be, I couldn't retire because of inflation, but if I had like $100 for every time, I could probably just go ahead and retire. It's a very common idea. I'm a pretty good person. I want to just, in this section, is just dispel that whole idea. We want to We want to come to grips with the seriousness of sin in our own personal lives. My goal is by the time we're done today, every one of us will want to get rebaptized. Just kidding about that. But here we go. Here are six ways to sin. Now, one of these or maybe two we might have thought of, but maybe not all of these. Number one is sins of commission. We commit. That's usually what we think of when we think about sin. God has said, forbidden something like thou shalt not lie. And we've told a lie. So we have... By telling that lie and actually doing something, we've broken God's law, we've committed that sin. So that category, sense of commission, and even the person who feels like they're a pretty good person, still on solid ground on this one, because they'll say, well, I may have stolen something, or I may have shoplifted, I may have told a white lie, but I've never murdered anybody. So they can still kind of compare themselves to others and feel pretty good. All right, that's number one. That's the one probably all of us are familiar with. Number two, sinful attitudes. Now, the more sinful, the more sinful things that the, the Word of God deals with are these our attitudes that we have. They're kind of in the lining of our soul. They're integrated into our flesh. They're attitudes that are sinful that we struggle with. Even as Christians, when we kind of get them under control, and they're not as prevalent as they were, we can still feel them under the surface trying to reassert themselves. Let me go over some of these. I don't think I have, I don't think I have slides on these or scriptures. I'm just going to go through them really quickly to make an impression. Here come these, these are sinful attitudes. Let's see if we can see ourselves in any of these. Pride, arrogance, and conceit. Proverbs 8, I hate pride and arrogance, God says. Hatred and enmity, 1 John 3, 
Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Anger, the, the attitude of anger and wrath. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who is angry with a brother will be subject to judgment. Bitterness and malice. Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness along with every form of malice. Sensuality, Ephesians 4.19, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. Greed is one of these attitudes. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Envy. Solomon writes in Proverbs 14, envy rots the bones. Jealousy. 1 Corinthians 3.3, Paul writes, since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? And hypocrisy. Jesus again, Matthew 23. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. These are sinful attitudes with which we struggle and drive us to sins of commission. That's the second way to sin. All right, here's a third way. Sinful desires. Sinful desires. This is just the wanting to sin. We don't actually commit a sin. We just want to commit a sin. Jesus said, anyone, man, who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The sin of covetousness is desiring that which belongs to someone else, someone else's spouse, covet their spouse or their job or their possessions. The very wanting to sin is sinful. Here's a fourth one, sins of omission. All right, we said commission, things you actually do. Much of God's word, and including in the New Testament, is identifying positive, righteous acts that we should be doing. And when we don't do those things, we're sinning. James says, to the one who knows the right thing to do, and does not do it to him, it is sin. I mean, think of Jesus' story, the Good Samaritan. The man is beaten, robbed, left on the side of the road. Here comes the Levite, passes him by, does nothing. All right, that's a sin of omission because he wasn't loving his neighbor. Here comes the priest, passes him by, does nothing. A sin of omission. Which means we can, we can sin just sitting in our lazy boys uh, in the living room watching TV because we may not be doing and pursuing those righteous acts that God has prescribed for us in his word. Sins of omission. Here's a fifth one. We're talking about six kind of categories of sin. Imperfect obedience. Imperfect obedience. Even when we're doing right, even when we're obeying that which God has commanded us to do, and those are, even our righteous acts are often tainted tainted in their motivation. Because for every righteous act, there's, an, there's the outward appearance of that act, and then there's the inward reality and the inward motivation. And think of, think of how Jesus in Matthew 23 excoriated the scribes and the Pharisees because on the outside they looked one way, but on the inside they were whitewashed tombs. They had impure motivations. I mean, this, 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 we can sin even while we're coming to church or participating in communion or giving money. You know, in our church, we kind of make it hard to give money. Uh, we don't pass plates anymore. We put these boxes, we almost hide them back there on the wall, right next to those exit doors. But maybe you know that they're there. And so one day there's a guy, uh, Sunday went in and he meant to drop in a $10 bill, but he dropped in a $100 bill by accident. Now, once it goes through that slot, you can't get in there, and, and the lid is locked. And so he, he went and grabbed a deacon. And he said, you know, uh, could you open this up for me? And the deacon said, why? 
He said, because I need to make change. You know, I, I put in a hundred, only meant to put in a 10. The deacon said, no. We put in, we don't take out. And the man said, well, yeah, okay, okay. I guess I'll get credit for the $100 in heaven. And the deacon said, no, you'll only get credit for the 10. <laughs> Just how pure are our motivations when we're doing the right thing? So we're in church today, great. Are we here because we really want to? Jesus said all of our righteousness should be motivated out of love for God. Is all, everything we do out of love? Are we here because our parents want to? Are we here because we're afraid to go to hell? Or are we here, but even though we're here, we'd rather be somewhere else? We'd rather be over at the beach? And you're thinking, yeah, Steve, with a sermon like this today, I'd rather be at the beach. Well, I'd rather be at the beach too. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's not our sin, is it? That's the good stuff that we do. It's all tainted. And then the sixth category, this is an inelegant way to, to name it, but I call it glory shortfall. Glory shortfall. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that statement has two parts. Have sinned, that's kind of past tense. We think of sins of commission. Yeah, those are things that I have done in the past. But the fall short of the glory of God is in the present tense. We are currently falling short of the glory of God right now at this very moment in our lives. Because again, the Word of God, and another thing the Word of God prescribes for us is the cultivation of certain virtues, a lot of virtues and character in our hearts. But this is the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, these attitudes that we're supposed to have. We're, we're supposed to be merciful and poor in spirit and mourn for our sin and forgive our enemies. How's that working for us? Or the fruit of the Spirit. We're supposed to cultivate love and joy and peace, virtues, patience, kindness towards others and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And what's the standard on this? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The glory of God is the character of God. The expectation is we will perfectly exhibit these virtues and these characters. But Paul says, we are falling short. We are not perfectly living out these virtues and these characters. Just on a scale of 1 to 100, just how righteous are we? How is our, our mercy and our love and our joy and our faithfulness? How is all of that coming? I want us to embrace our inner sinner right here. Because there's a blessing in that. And that's my third point. The blessing that comes, ironically, from embracing and understanding the seriousness of sin for us personally. So when I was a kid, I, was, I had some neighbors who had a boat, and they taught me and my brother and sister how to ski. They took us out to the lake, you know, water ski. They took us out to the lake, and then when it was my turn, they said, Steve, at some point you're going to get up, and you're going to ski for a little while, and then when you fall down, and when you fall down, make sure you let go of the ski rope. That's what they said, Steve, let go of the rope. And I, which I, at the time I thought, that seems superfluous. I'm not sure you needed to tell me that. I'm not a moron. Of course, I'm going to let go of the ski rope. Well, you know what happened. I got up, skied about 50 yards, 
fell, and I held on to the ski rope. I wasn't being obstinate. It was just instinctual. And they drugged me for a while, and a little while around the lake. I drank about a gallon of lake water. And then finally, that rope was ripped out of my hands by the force of the boat and the resistance of the water, right? Apparently, and I don't think it's just me, apparently there's something instinctual, and I don't know if I thought I was going to jump up and barefoot ski, there's something instinctual about holding on. And likewise, in this whole idea of going to heaven or being accepted to God, there's something in us that wants to hold on to this idea, I'm a pretty good person. I'm, no, I'm not, not any worse than any of these other people. I'm pretty good. If anybody else is going to heaven, I am because I'm a pretty good person. And Paul in chapters, Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is just decimating that whole idea. And when he comes to his conclusion that we're going to read here in verses 10 through 18 in Romans 3, this is where he just seems to rip that rope right out of our hands with the force of our sinfulness. Listen to this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That in and of itself is fairly compelling, but it's got a lot of they and them and there in there, so we still might feel like, oh, Lord, thank you, I'm not a sinner like that guy over there, like them. I like to put these kinds of things in the first person when I journal and when I pray. Listen to this in the first person. I'll read it for me. You read it for you in your mind. I am not righteous. I do not understand. I do not seek God. I have turned away. I have become worthless, and I don't do good. My throat is an open grave, and my tongue deceives, and the poison of vipers is on my lips. My mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, and my feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark my way. The way of peace I do not know, and there is no fear of God before my eyes. That's me. Some of us got saved before we even thought we were lost. And so we don't have a, a, a very deep appreciation for the grace of God. Why? God didn't have to stoop down very far to save me. Pretty good person. What did Jesus say? He who has been forgiven little loves little. We wonder why we love God little. Why don't we love God more? Why don't we sing with more passion? Why, why aren't we eager to come and worship God and pray to God and read His Word? Eh. Forgiven little, love little. Who clings more tightly to that life preserver? The swimmer or the non-swimmer? It's the non-swimmer. He knows that life preserver is his only chance. And so, Romans 5.8, the Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were all of that, Christ died for us. The great blessing in understanding the seriousness of our sin is it positions us to desperately seek the one way of salvation that God is offering to us, which is grace. Salvation by grace through faith. God treating us the very opposite of how we deserve to be treated and giving us the very opposite 
of what we have earned. And that, I, I think this is maybe the most important message. It positions us for the next message next Sunday when we talk about salvation, how salvation works in Christianity. And then the message after that, which may be even more important, is our message for Christians on the assurance of salvation, how we make sure we know and have the assurance that we are saved and right with God. Those, those are the next two messages. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with no illusions about ourselves. We know that we have been sinners in the past, and we know that we are sinners right now. We know that your Holy Spirit, while he is helping us, we still must struggle with our sinfulness every day. It is embedded in us. It is in the flesh. It's in the lining of our souls. It is a struggle. It's a civil war every single day. It's not that we needed your grace yesterday. We need your grace today, right now, in this very moment, in our very worship of you, in the very act of taking the Lord's Supper. All of this, all of this is by your grace. And we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.